Let it be known that the reason Daniel knew that song so well is he wrote it. Nice work, Daniel. Thank you so very much. Somebody said that uh, the corral is selling donuts um, in the lobby, but um, that's kind of complicated when you're trying to move to the next class, so I'm going to take the money out of my wife's account, buy all the donuts, they're free, so when you're done, go take a free donut, my wife will cover the cost of all the donuts, so when you... And when she says to me, you spent how much on donuts, I'll try to explain uh, the reality. But enjoy the donuts. Don't worry about the money. Besides, you're not supposed to have money changers in the temple. So, <laughs> Last I heard, anyway. Let me welcome all of you who are here for this VIEW weekend. Uh, this is really an amazing place, and I think what defines us is uh, bound up in our name, the Master's University. This is all about Christ, about exalting Christ, making Him preeminent. The great Christian confession has always been Jesus is Lord. That's how you identify yourself as a true Christian. Jesus is Lord. Um, I have denied myself, taken up my cross, and followed Him. The question that I just want to talk to you a little bit about, and this isn't really a, a sermon or anything, this is just me kind of talking to you this morning, is um, what does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Um, some people might think it's pretty complicated. It might require some extensive curricular um, exposure. It might require some long-term um, accountability. It might require... A, um, deeper grasp of theology to be a follower of Christ. Um, but I want to show you how Jesus discipled a disciple. How He discipled a disciple in the most severe crisis that occurred among all the disciples. Discounting Judas, who was never a true believer. He was a devil. Jesus said that. It would have been better for him if he'd never been born because then he wouldn't spend eternity in hell. But among the other 11, the, the greatest crisis that ever occurred was with Peter, the, uh, the leader of the group, uh, I think acknowledged leader of the group, acknowledged by the Lord to be the leader of the group, acknowledged by the others to be the leader of the group. Uh, in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and even James and John, sons of thunder, which meant they were type A personalities. They wanted to breathe down fire and brimstone on a whole town that didn't receive the Lord the way they thought they should. He thought they should. So they were not meek and mild. They were the ones who sent their mother to ask Jesus if they could sit on the right and the left hand of him in his kingdom. They were not mild, reclining men. Uh, they, they were bold, fierce direct and ambitious men. But even uh, Peter towered over them, and he, become, he became the spokesman for the disciples, and we see that throughout the New Testament. Uh, while their weakness is manifest, and certainly the weakness of James and John was manifest in their ambition, um, the weakness of Peter became the most manifest failure of any of the eleven disciples. 
And the, the pinnacle of Peter's weakness shows up in the incident that is recorded. You can turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 22, if you will. Luke chapter 22, in verse 54, a very familiar portion of Scripture. Jesus is arrested here and led away in verse 54, and brought into the house of the high priest, and Peter is following at a distance. That's more than can be said for the rest. They all scattered and fled. Uh, nothing commendable about that. Peter is uh, marginally more to be commended for at least following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, this is in the high priest's housing complex where former and current high priests lived in units around a courtyard, typical in that time. And Peter was sitting among the people who were there, the, the assortment of servants and people who worked for the, the high priestly family and others who were responsible for various duties, including soldiers and others. A servant girl, the least of all threatening people, seeing him as he sat in the firelight looking intently at him, said, this man was with him too. This man was with Jesus too, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And you gasp for breath. That is a flat, outright denial of Christ on the level of Judas, initially. Stunning that he would say that, because a few verses earlier, he pulled out a sword and wanted to hack his way through the whole Roman contingent that had come to arrest Jesus in the garden. He got as far as one guy's ear, and the Lord stopped him and gave him back his ear. Put your sword away. You live by the sword. You'll die by the sword. And Jesus affirmed capital punishment. But he says, woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you're one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. Now, these people don't have any authority. These are just folks standing around a fire. Peter denies the Lord and continues to do it. If you put the gospel accounts together, it appears as though he denied the Lord on three different occasions or at three different moments in that scene, but perhaps as many as six or more denials actually came out of his mouth. Man, I am not. About an hour had passed. Another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. It must have been a burning look. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me on three occasions. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know, there's a lot at stake with Peter. Really a lot. Back in Matthew 16, it was Peter who said, Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God, affirmed the deity of Christ and His Messiahship. It was Peter's confession that basically was going to be the truth, the doctrinal reality that was the foundation of the church. It was Peter who was going to be responsible for preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost, the founding of the church when the Holy Spirit came and 3,000 were converted and, and uh, not too many days after that, preaching again and 5,000 are converted and, and uh, very soon the church grows into 
thousands and thousands of people all under the preaching of Peter, things don't look good at this point for the usefulness of Peter. He's a coward. He's sniveling. He's weak. He's a blatant denier of Christ on the level of Judas. Judas went out, however, and hanged himself. Peter went out and wept bitterly. With Judas, it was the suicide of impenitent remorse. With Peter, it was tears of penitent remorse. Then we go to the cross and the events that follow. What about the future? What is the Lord going to do to restore Peter? Turn to the last chapter of Gospel of John. The last chapter of the Gospel of John. Chapter 21. This is after the resurrection that Jesus has appeared to the disciples on the night of the resurrection and appeared to them again eight days later. Thomas being present the second time, he has um, shown himself after his resurrection. They have seen the scars and the wounds and, and they know it is the Lord. The Lord says to the disciples, go to Galilee and stay there until I come. And I will come and appear to you. Go and wait for me in Galilee. That's the scene as we come to John 21. The disciples, the eleven, are now in Galilee and they're supposed to be waiting for Jesus. We pick up the story in chapter 21. You can follow along in your Bibles. Fascinating chapter. After these things, Jesus manifested Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and He manifested Himself in this way. That's an introductory statement to what's going to come in this whole chapter. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus the twin, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John, and two others of His disciples, Philip and Andrew, no doubt. That's seven of them, and they're all there in Galilee identified. It may well be that these were the seven fishermen among the disciples. There could be as many as seven of them that were fishermen. Simon Peter says to them in verse 3, I am going fishing. And he says this with finality as recorded in the Greek language. This isn't a recreational fishing escapade. I'm going back to my old career. I'm going back to fishing. This, this guy is a leader. In a very cryptic response, we read, they said to him, we will also come with you. Like a bunch of rubber ducks, they're going to float down the same stream that Peter's in. They went out and got into the boat. So get the picture. Jesus says, go to Galilee and wait for me. They're sitting in Galilee and Jesus doesn't come for a while and Peter begins to do an inventory on his life and goes back and thinks about how many times he said stupid things, how many times he opened his mouth and shoved his foot into it, how many times he even said to the Lord, that's not going to happen, Lord, and actually rebuked the Son of God. All that folly comes back to him. He's very, very cognizant of his defection in the courtyard of the high priest that night. He's brokenhearted over all of that. His tears are 
legitimately extended into the sorrow and lack of confidence in himself that we see here. So essentially what is happening is he says to himself, you know, I don't, I don't think I can do this. I don't, think, I don't think I'm useful to the Lord. I have failed on every level. And when the stakes are the highest, I have failed. You say, well, wait a minute. He pulled a sword in the garden. That's pretty bold. Yeah, but who was standing right beside him? Jesus. And he knew he was in the presence of the Son of God who he believed would deliver him. When the Son of God was a prisoner, his courage was gone. He could trust himself if Christ was next to him. He couldn't trust himself if he wasn't. So without Jesus around, what use was he in his own mind? He was sort of like Isaiah. I'm a man with unclean lips. Woe is me. And the others feel somewhat the same, which indicates their own weakness. When Jesus was arrested, they forsook him and fled. So they all got into the boat. The boat, their boat, Peter's boat. They had a fishing enterprise there that was probably pretty significant, and if all seven of them were involved in it, they probably did a, a large amount of fishing and fishing with nets and bringing in huge amounts of fish. They had more than a, uh, a simple fishing village, fishing business. They may have well exported their fish, who knows, out into the various lands surrounding Israel, the Mediterranean. They're saying we're going to go back to fishing. That we know how to do. However, the end of verse 3 says, that night they caught nothing. And our Lord was saying to them, can't do that again. You, you, you can't catch fish anymore. Why? Because I control the fish. They caught nothing. You can imagine that they were sort of thinking, we'll go back to doing what we know how to do very well, and they couldn't do it. Because the Lord made sure the fish never went near their nets. But when the day was now breaking, verse 4, Jesus stood on the beach. He showed up in Galilee and caught them in their disobedience and defection. This is, this is defection 2.0 for Peter, at least, if not more. Yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. He's standing on the shore and they're out in the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus said to them, children... You do not have any fish, do you? This is really irritating by the very nature of the comment itself. This is rubbing in their failure. They answered him, no, and I'm sure there was some other mumbling attached to the simple word no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find a catch. I would have said to myself, are you kidding? We've fished all night, and you think we've only used one side of the boat? But they did that because when the Lord speaks, He speaks with authority. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. What our Lord was saying was, you can't fish because I control the fish. I can keep them away from your boat. I can send them to your boat. I control the fish. And you know what I called you to be. Not fishers of fish, but what? Fishers of men. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, 
Why call yourself John when you can call yourself the disciple whom Jesus loved? <laughs> Said to Peter, It is the Lord! So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work. Hard work, this fishing, and they'd stripped down to just the loincloth. He throws on his outer garment and threw himself into the sea. It's a little backwards to put your coat on and then dive in, but that uh, was the trauma of the moment. <laughs> so you can see that Peter is basically traumatized at this point. The other disciples had a little better control of their senses, and they came in the little boat. For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, and they were dragging the net full of fish. Peter just dives out. This is so much Peter's impetuous character. He's headed for the Lord as fast as he can get there. Again, no doubt sorrowful, no doubt penitent, no doubt sad that he again has failed to obey the Lord and do what he was told to do, and he has defected and gone back to his old life. They all finally arrive at the land and the remaining disciples are dragging this net full of fish. We'll see more about that in two verses. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus had made breakfast. You know how Jesus makes breakfast? Breakfast. I don't think he rubbed two sticks together to make a fire either. And Jesus said, look, bring some of the fish which you've now caught as well. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, which speaks to the reality, the historical reality of the event. The number of fish is actually counted. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. That was more large fish than the net should normally have hold. So you have some miracles going on here. You have a miracle breakfast. You, you have a net that holds when it shouldn't have held. And you have a catch of fish that's absolutely beyond expectation. And our Lord is saying to Simon Peter and the others, I'm in control of everything. Everything. Jesus said to them, verse 12, come and have breakfast. There's something very tender about that, isn't there? The absence of rebuke. Come and have breakfast. And a meal in ancient times was always basically the setting for a conversation. Uh, I would like to know all that they, they said to him or he said to them. We don't have the record of that. But um, not only did he invite them to breakfast... But it says, none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing it was the Lord. They knew. They knew because of total control. They normally would have recognized him, but remember now, he is in a glorified form, and they've only seen him twice. And it's been some time since they saw him last. And the setting is different, and the scene is different, and who knows what a glorified Christ looked like. After all, he, he did eat once before with them in the upper room, and he did also pass through the door 
rearranging the molecules of his body so that they went between the molecules of the door. But they knew it was him, not so much because they could see that it was him recognizably, but because he was in control of everything. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. And again, this is, this is the Lord serving them. There's a sweetness in this, and this is how the Lord begins to disciple a disciple. A disciple who has essentially nearly crashed and burned. A disciple who has descended as far down as you can go and still, and still be in, in the kingdom. He has hit rock bottom with all the denials and all the expressions of disobedience and self-distrust. He's at the bottom. But the Lord depends on him because he's going to be the man who preaches the gospel on the day of Pentecost when the church is formed, 3,000 believe, and uh, everything that we know as the mystery kingdom, the glory of the church begins to unfold. Peter is critical to that. So he has to be restored. This is now the third time Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Only the third time those those two Sunday evenings and then this. Now we come to the main point that I, I want you to see. When they had finished breakfast, and I don't, again, I don't know what they were talking about, but certainly they were apologetic to the Lord for not waiting for Him, but picking up their old trade as if they were going to just turn their back on the calling to be fishers of men and go back to the old life. But we know this, Jesus focuses on Simon Peter. And here's how Jesus disciples a disciple. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's the question. Do you love me more than these? What do you mean these? These men? No. These fish? No. These things that go with your former life, boats, nets, fish, the lake. Do you love me more than these things? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus used the strong word, agapao, the word for the highest, noblest, self-sacrificing love of the will, not an emotional love so much, but a, a willful love, a love that recognizes one worthy of love. Do you love me at the highest level? Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. Now just think about that. The highest possible calling for a person to have is to, to shepherd the flock of God, right? Right? It's the highest calling, to care for His church, to be a steward of the redeemed, to be a shepherd of the sheep, an under-shepherd under Christ. That's the highest calling a human being can have. And the Lord only asked Peter one question to qualify him for that in the face of all of his failures. He only asked him one question, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
recognizing his omniscience. He had to depend on omniscience because it wasn't obvious from the circumstances. And he said, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, or Jonas, do you love me? Same question. Same question. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. I'm calling you out of the past, out of your old career, out of your old world, out of all those things. I want you to shepherd my sheep. I want you to tend my lambs. And all I ask is that you love me. The highest calling that anybody could ever have, the highest calling in the world, and in Peter's case, the, the highest calling of an apostle to take care of the flock of God. No stewardship is equal to that stewardship in its elevated sense of responsibility. All I ask, Peter, is that you love me. He said to him the third time, do you love me? And Jesus changed the word. He'd been using agapao, the highest love, and now he drops down one notch and he says, do you love me, phileo? That's the love of friendship. That's not that noblest, highest love of self-sacrificing, humble generosity, that love of the will. This is um, affection, a kind of brotherly love. Do you phileo me? Do, do you have affection for me? And he's dropped down. As if to say, I, I have reason to question whether you agapao me. Do you phileo me? Do you have affection for me, if not the highest, noblest love? And then verse 17 says, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? It's not because he said it the third time. It's because the third time he used the word phileo. He said, look, I question whether you even have affection for me. He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I have affection for you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Why three times? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. Three separate occasions. Many denials. For all of those occasions, the Lord gave him an opportunity to reaffirm his love. Again, the highest calling, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep, is predicated on one confession. Do you love me? Do you love me? How did Jesus disciple a disciple? How did Jesus' disciple lift up a disciple at the lowest point in his life and make him useful for the future at the highest possible level? He only asked him one question. Do you love me? This is the heart and soul of all Christian life and discipleship. It's not complex. It's, it's not complicated. It doesn't take all kinds of input there's not some kind of methodology and some kind of system you need to understand to be a disciple. It comes down to this. Do you love Christ? Do you love Him? 
Peter just confesses three times, yes, I, I love you, and tried to confess that his love was the highest kind of love. The Lord came down to a lower level, and, and he confessed to that lower level of love. And, and in the face of that, the Lord says, okay, feed my sheep. He's, he's definitely got a flawed shepherd on his hands here. But it is enough if he loves the Lord. And that's all that the Lord ever asks in discipling a disciple. Do you love me? Do you love me? That's the issue. And in John 14 and 15, and I, I won't take you into all those verses, but you know John 14 and 15, Jesus repeatedly says, if you love me, you what? Keep my what? My commandments. If you love me, you keep my commandments. If you love me, you keep my commandments. The Christian life is about loving Christ. Loving Christ is about knowing Christ. Loving Christ is about denying yourself and setting your focus on Him. Not complicated. Not complicated. The environment in which that happens is an environment where Christ is exalted and honored all the time. There are many churches you can go to, and you, you might go there for years, and you might hear some good things, some motivating talks, you, you might hear some things about Jesus, but, but you don't get the feeling that Christ is all and in all. That every time you go into that situation, Jesus Christ is being exalted. Jesus Christ is being lifted up. And it was Jesus who said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. The whole of the Christian life is about knowing Christ. It's about loving Christ. And you, the more you know Him, the more you love Him. And the more you love Him, the more you obey Him. Peter was put to an immediate test. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. In other words, you, you, know, you put on your robe and put your little sash on and did what you want. You were in charge of your life. But when you grow old, this is a prophecy, you will stretch out your hands. That phrase is used of crucifixion. The Lord says, Peter... You're going to be crucified. And someone else will tie you up and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. You love me, Peter? It is going to cost you your life. You're going to be crucified for me. Jesus said, do you want to be my disciple? Deny yourself, take up your what? Your cross, follow me. He says here, now that I've told you there's going to be a cross, he said to him, follow me. Have you ever wondered how Peter responded to that? You might think he would say, uh-oh, I'm going to end up crucified. That's a terrifying thought. I don't think that's his reaction. I think, truthfully, that was the best news he'd ever heard. 
In most cases, the Lord doesn't tell a martyr that martyrdom is inevitable. It's pretty good to keep that information back, or you wind up dying a million times before you die, anticipating it. But in the case of Peter, the only way that Peter would ever have faithfully gone into ministry was if he had a completely different view of his ability to stand the test. And the only way he would know that he was going to stand the test when he faced it again in a dire circumstance where it was life and death and Christ was on the line, the only way he would be able to go into ministry with confidence in himself would be to know that when he faced that test again, he would be faithful to Christ and he would take crucifixion before he would reject his Lord. That was the best news he ever heard. I think the Lord had to tell him that or he would never have enough confidence in himself to take a step in the direction of shepherding the flock of God. I think Peter was actually thrilled. I think a smile went across that face. I think his heart jumped. I think it began to pound. I think adrenaline was rushing through his body. And there might have been even a lingering thought, boy, I hope this happens soon because I want to see myself pass that test. I'm tired of my failures. But Peter's still Peter, by the way. So he turns around. He's probably not taking two steps in following, but he turns around. He saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. We all know who that is, right? Why call yourself John when you can call yourself that? He's following. And then John also says, you know, the one who leaned back on his chest at the supper. John, we get it. He loves you, and you were sitting next to him at the Last Supper. Okay, we get it. We're glad you're happy about that, John. Um, it was also John, he says, who said to the Lord, who's the one who betrays you? John is happy to celebrate his intimacy with Christ. Peter sees him in verse 21 and said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? I love this answer. Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until the second coming, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter is still Peter. Just keep your eyes forward. Love me. Follow me. Don't worry about him. What if, what if he remains till I return? None of your business. You follow me. Don't be concerned about somebody else. And of course, you know what happened because he said that the saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet, Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Imagine that, a whole verse at the end of the Gospel of John just to straighten out a rumor. <laughs> when Jesus wanted to disciple a disciple, a disciple who had hit rock bottom, who had hit the, the ultimate low in his life, when Jesus wanted to disciple a disciple who was absolutely critical to the establishment of the church, when Jesus wanted to disciple a disciple who was the voice for the gospel in the first half of the book of Acts, all he asked was one question three times. What is the question? What? Do you love me? That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Your Christian life is directly proportionate to your love for Him. 
The strength of your Christian life is directly proportionate to your love for Him. The usefulness of your Christian life is directly correspondent to your love for Him. The reason the Old Testament is so full of prophecies and pictures of coming, the coming Christ, the reason there are four Gospels that tell His story, the reason there is the book of Acts that gives you the proclamation concerning Christ and His Gospel, the reason there are all the epistles explaining the significance of Christ and the Gospel, the reason there is the book of Revelation which fills in all of the glorification of Christ now and in the future is because Christ is the theme of everything. Christian life is not mechanical. Christian life is not based upon learning a few tricks. The Christian life is all about loving Christ. And as you love Him more, you become more obedient, more useful, more effective, more worshipful, more joyful, and more content. Such simplicity. How does Jesus disciple a disciple at the lowest point? He asks him the same question three times. Do you love me? Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We know that Scripture says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be damned. Uh, we, we know that those who are on their way to heaven are defined as those who love Christ, and those on their way to hell are defined as those who do not love Christ. We do love Him. We want to love Him more. And to love Him more, we want to know Him more. Show us Christ. May we pray the prayer of Paul that I may know Him, that I may know Him, that I may love Him more, that I may be useful to serve Him. Fill our hearts with joy in loving Christ. All this for His honor and His glory, we pray.